0: So, good evening. Um, nice these evenings, the past month, just watching it get brighter and warmer every single Tuesday evening. And, um, I just came back from Halifax where it was cold and rainy. to be back here, back in the world of the Lotus Sutra. So for those of you who haven't been here every single week for the past two months, almost, we've been studying the Lotus Sutra, which is a Mahayana text. And um, I like to think of it as like Rococo Buddhism (laughs) (laughs) or extravagant Buddhism. If you photocopied the Lotus Sutra, it would come out in sequins, gold (laughs) sequins. So what we covered in the last couple of weeks is the way that the arhats, so these are the early perfected beings in early Buddhism, were searching after enlightenment. And the practitioners of the Lotus Sutra instead realized um, that the world was already awake. And in a way, this sounds like dueling doctrines. On the one hand, uh, people striving for awakening, and on the other hand, people recognizing that the world is already awake and I like to think of this uh, in terms of contemporary yoga on the one hand there are a lot of people that define yoga as a verb which is uh, that yoga is about uniting two things together and on the other hand there are the practitioners of center of gravity (laughs) (laughs) do you know that joke there are two kinds of people people who think that there are two kinds of people and people who don't (laughs) so basically there's two kinds of practitioners people who are striving for enlightenment trying to yoke the world together and then on the other hand there's the doctrine of people who recognize that everything is already uh, vitally awake everything in sequence there might be a theme tonight (laughs) Um, but this is not just about opposing doctrines Uh, this is also about us Um, you don't hear too many people coming to practice saying "Uh, hi, this is my first time here I'm here to save all sentient beings (laughs) and to recognize the inherent interdependence of reality so that I can wake up and serve people Uh, if somebody came and spoke this way I would ask them a lot of questions and have a private (laughs) meeting with them usually we come because we're suffering and we need a certain vocabulary to deal with our own situation. And one of my teachers when I was studying psychology was a guy named James Hillman. James Hillman inherited uh, Carl Jung's position at the Jung Institute in Zurich when Jung died. And um, he talks about how when people uh, would come to the Jung Institute, to apply to do postgraduate studies uh, to become a psychoanalyst. At the time, they called it an analytical psychologist. Um, who would want that name? What do you? Do? I'm an analytical psychologist. That's like the problem that most of us <laughs> <laughs> start with. So, Anyways, uh, and apparently, this is what he used to say, that if people said that they were there and wanted to study because they wanted to help people, he wouldn't let them in. And if people came and they were on their knees and having a hard time and really wanting to learn about themselves, he would admit them. And I always thought this was an interesting admission uh, of his admission process. Um... Something in us starts to practice because of pain, and we hope that the practice will make a difference. And this is a good starting point. Um, And that should be your proper motivation. And then as you practice, the world becomes more colorful. We start to see that our relational lives are something worth giving attention to. Not just relations with human beings, but relations with Earth, with the rain, with helicopters, and with the city that we live in. And that to be embedded in the city means that our actions make a difference, and then we start to see that as uh, our practice. When I was in Halifax uh, yesterday, I spent the uh, morning visiting a place called Connections, which is a, a mental health center. Uh, right downtown. And the way they organize this center is they understaff it on purpose. It's called a clubhouse model. And so you have a kitchen. There's a bank that's open for an hour a day. And then it's understaffed so that the people who come and use the services have to volunteer their time to keep the place running. If they want three meals a day, they have to show up and make three meals a day. And then you kind of have an administrative staff that supports it. But all the staff there work with everybody who's there. <coughs> Sometimes it's hard to tell who's who. And um, it was really interesting just watching the, the way that a uh, society, uh, a mini society, can organize itself um, uh, by itself, in ways that serves uh, the particular needs of that community, um, which are social and food and uh, banking. And so on. So, anyways, this is the life of the Lotus Sutra. And, uh, you know, I use this term a lot, and, you know, some people don't like it, but I use it to make a point, which is that Buddhism, practiced uh, through the lens of the Lotus Sutra, is pro social. It's pro social, it's valuing others because we need others to wake up. For, for you and I to wake up, we need each other and we can't do it alone. So um, now that we're studying the Lotus Sutra and being opened to these ideas, our practice is never going to be the same again. Next time we touch our forehead, we might see a beam of light. <laughs> Do you remember this from the first, mm-hmm. first evening? Um, no matter what kind of people we are, no matter what our shortcomings are, no matter what our habits are, no matter what our preferences are, even if you are, as the first person who was enlightened in the Lotus Sutra, somebody desiring fame, even you can become a Buddha. So, you know, in society then that was like the lowliest thing we could be, (laughs) (laughs) somebody desiring notoriety. (laughs) Things haven't changed too much, I guess. Um, And then we went through the story of the prodigal son who ended up inheriting wealth. And the moral of the story was that... um, the wealth that he ended up being put in charge of was his own inheritance. Which I think is a a theme that you find all through the the text. That somebody doesn't realize they're wealthy. Um, So then we're going to skip a chapter, which is uh, the bestowal of prophecy... It's a little bit repetitive. And basically the Buddha offers many, many different predictions. And he tells uh, the four disciples who are close to him from the last chapter uh, what future lives might be like for them. And uh, once in a while to make it through this text, because we're already in week seven and we're in chapter five, we're going to just skip a little. Um, But on that theme of skimming, um, the next chapter is called The Phantom City. And it's a very famous parable about a phantom city. How many of you have read this chapter already on the phantom city? Oh, really? Great. (laughs) Interesting. Okay, well, you might not have noticed then that the chapter begins on page 117 in the Burton Watson translation. And it ends... on page 142 okay and only the last two pages talk about the phantom city that's 20 something pages of stuff and I find it interesting especially because I'm reading the Burton Watson translation the commentary, the Gene Reeves commentary the Gene Reeves book on his translation which is called Stories of the Lotus Sutra Thich not Hans' commentary on the Lotus Sutra. And none of them deal with the fact that only two pages of that chapter are about the Phantom City. And so I, too, was kind of skimming the beginning. And I thought, 20 plus pages of kind of psychedelic teaching. And I thought, maybe this needs a little bit of, of attention. And I've actually come to find that this is my favorite part now of the Lotus Sutra, which is this section. Um, which is the section between sections? In yoga, it said that uh, whenever you have two things, the the place where they meet and don't meet is the Atman, is what's sacred. You know, it's like words on a page. You know, it's the spaces between them that connect them. You know? Yoga postures are like this. We're most interested in those linking movements between yoga postures. And the best part about the linking movements is they don't have names. See, all the yoga postures have names, and the linking movements are actually the most fruitful part of the practice. And it's the way you link different poses are actually what distinguishes different schools of yoga. They almost all have the same poses, but it's actually how they're linked in all those places that don't have names that are the most most fruitful. Just like that space now when daytime is about to become nighttime, it's a special. photographers love this, right? It's a special time. And uh, likewise, this section of the Lotus Sutra, I think, is really fantastic. So before we get there, um, <clears throat> there is a quick parable right before this section at the end of the last Uh, it's called the parable of herbs which is the end of the fifth chapter the buddha compares the dharma to a cloud which covers the whole world and rains down upon all the grass and all the herbs and all the trees okay so keep in mind this is an indian audience right or a rural chinese audience but primarily indian and you live in a dry season, primarily. right? And so when the rains come, this is a really fruitful time. Right? So this image is saying the Dharma, all the Buddha's teachings, are like rainfall. And they land on everything equally. So at first you might hear that this is a, a metaphor for the fact that the teachings land on everybody in a unique way. But also, at the same time, it's also saying something about awareness, that the rain lands on everything equally. The rain doesn't decide, oh, I'm going to land on the roof, but not the dog shit. <laughs> right? I'm going to land on the snow, but not those leaves composting over there. The rain lands on everything equally. And maybe our awareness, and you could even say maybe kindness, kindness, can work this way too. The kindness of the people at Connections in Halifax. Having time for everybody who's walking in the door. I wasn't used to being in uh, a mental health situation, like you know a mental health hospital. No, not a hospital, a center like this. And so I noticed that when I was talking To my friends who were there, I was looking at them and communicating, and I was ignoring the other people in the lobby waiting for the bank to open. And then I recognized that the person I was speaking with wasn't ignoring them. He kept looking at them, including them in our conversation. If we were all outside and it was raining, it was raining, the rain would land on all of us equally. But my attention wasn't landing on everything equally. It was picking and choosing, creating separation and discrimination. And we all do this in our inner world, too, don't we? It's like, oh, I'll open to this, but not that. Um, So the cloud of the Dharma is a great relief to everybody. And that's all I'm going to say about this, this parable, because I want to go straight into this in-between section. Are there any comments or questions before I keep going? I have all this in my own, like I'm living the Lotus Sutra every day, <laughs> but I just want to make sure this is coming across. Are there any questions or comments? Or, well, I yeah, know, same. I don't know if I can say this clearly, but when you're talking about something landing on everything, or your awareness permeating everything. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're giving out and receiving? Sure, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Because I, I seem to separate... When I, when I imagine rain falling and it landing on everything, it's, it's separate from me. So
1: it's separate from it you.
0: happening to me. Yeah. The rain falling on me as opposed to what I'm emanating. Does uh-huh. that make sense what I'm saying? <laughs> The rain lands on everything equally. Is separate from you? No. The what I can give out through my awareness seems separate from something landing. Ah, if awareness is yours. Yeah. What if awareness doesn't belong to you? Right. (laughs) Yeah. You know, when you're out of the way, awareness gives itself to everything equally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Awareness just pours out. It's like the sun. The sun is just pouring itself out all the time. We'll get back to that. Maybe even tonight, plants will receive a little bit of rain. Or people around you will receive a little kindness. Dampen things. Um, so let's jump in now Um, parable of the phantom city so again like I said there's a whole section before we get to the phantom city Uh, I have skipped that and I don't want to skip it so I'm just going to read it out loud not all 20 pages This is another one of those chapters where, really, we should drop acid first, <laughs> you know, just to really feel the, the the sequence shining in this chapter. Did we record that? Okay. The Buddha announced to the monks, "The Buddha, great universal wisdom excellence." So, in the precepts course, this is I, I wanted to give everybody names, which I'm not going to. But um, wouldn't it be so nice if you received a new name? Mm-hmm. And some of you could be, you know, seeker of great fame. <laughs> <laughs> and some of you could be um, <clears throat> Buddha Great Universal Wisdom Excellence. <laughs> <laughs> the Buddha Great Universal Wisdom Excellence had a lifespan of 540, 10,000 million Nayutas of kalpas, a measurement of a kalpa. A kalpa is a glacial age. He was around for a really long time. So again, 540, 10,000 million nayutas of kalpas. That's a lot. Okay. This Buddha at first sat in the place of practice, having smashed the armies of the devil, he was on the point of attaining Anuttara Samyaksambodhi. but the doctrines of the Buddha did not appear before him. Right, sitting, sitting for all those kalpas, and did not wake up. Oh, you know what? I skipped ahead. No, I didn't. Okay. Uh, this state continued for one small kalpa. And then so on for ten small kalpas. I don't know what a small kalpa is. The Buddha sitting with legs crossed, body and mind unmoving, but the doctrines of the Buddha still did not appear. At the time, the heavenly beings of heaven spread a lion's seat measuring y- one yojana in height underneath a bodhi tree for the Buddha. Okay. So there's a Buddha, right? Great wisdom excellence. He's sitting trying to wake up like the Buddha, right? And then all of these uh, beautiful heavenly beings established a seat out of a lion at the Bodhi tree where the Buddha woke up. Okay? And it's one yojana in height. A yojana, technically, is the distance an army can walk in one day. I don't know what that is, 20 miles maybe. So, a distance an army can walk by foot in one day is a yojana. So, the height of this lion's chair within this Bodhi tree is one yojana, and this is all happening in tens of hundreds of thousands of millions of glacial ages. (coughs) Catch this? Okay. Um, The Buddha should sit. In this, as soon as the Buddha took his seat there, the Brahma kings caused a multitude of heavenly flowers to rain down covering the ground for a hundred yojanas around him. That's pretty far, right? So all these flowers raining down. This has been in almost every chapter, mm-hmm. this image of the flowers raining down. Okay, so... Um, then I realized that Dogen... Loved this, and also that there is a koan about this. So I thought we'd just switch gears because this, this section in this sutra actually influenced a famous koan, which is from the Mumon Khan, Case 9, which is also called the Gateless Gate. So this is a collection of 48 Chinese koans compiled by Wu Men in the 13th century. And it goes like this. A monk asked, the Buddha sat in meditation for ten kalpas, but he did not manifest, and he could not attain Buddhahood. How could this be? Yeah? Buddha sat there under the tree for ten kalpas, ten glacial ages, but could not attain Buddhahood. How could this be? So you have to take this in now. You have to work on this. The teacher replied, Your question expresses it perfectly. (laughs) The monk said, But he sat in meditation for so many kalpas. How could he not attain Buddhahood? Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt this way on retreat? You know, I'm sitting and I'm sitting and I, you know, I'm a little quieter but you know, a month has gone by and I'm still just completely preoccupied with myself. How come I cannot attain Buddhahood? Someone asked me this once in an interview on the first day of a retreat. You talk about intimacy with all things and I don't feel that. and the teacher responds because he could not attain buddhahood (laughs) do you hear the lotus sutra in here can anybody feel their way into this column should I go through it again The Buddha sat in meditation for ten kalpas, but he did not manifest and he could not attain Buddhahood. How could this be? How could this be? That's the main part of the question. It's not that he didn't attain Buddhahood. It's like, how can this be? I come on retreat every single year, I sit with you, I don't feel the love. How could this be? Your question expresses it perfectly. That's what I should have said. Your question expresses it perfectly. The monk said, but he sat in meditation. How could he not attain Buddhahood? And the teacher, Seijo, said, because he could not attain Buddhahood. Why could he not attain Buddhahood? Because he's already there. Because he's already a Buddha. (laughs) He's already a Buddha. He's already a Buddha. How many of us do this? Right? We go around for... How many kalpas was it? Do you remember? Let me just remind you. 540,000 million Naitas and Kalpas wanting to attain Buddhahood. We can't attain Buddhahood. Why? Because you already are a Buddha. Could you see how Dogen loved this? (laughs) Because you already are a Um, uh, Wu Men, this is called Mumon Khan, the the other name is Wu Men, uh, because he collected the koans and then uh, made a comment on all the koans. Here's his comment. When one is ignorant and attains realization, he is a saint, When one is ignorant and attains realization, he's a saint. When a saint begins to understand, he is ignorant. When you're ignorant, and then you attain realization, you are a saint. A saint is somebody who who goes and serves, right? You're a saint. But when you're a saint and then you begin to have notions about what's going on for you, then you're ignorant (laughs) again. Which is a nice way of making awakening more dynamic. We wake up, we wake up, then we get ideas about it, and it shuts us down again. So, let's keep going here. When the Buddha Great Universal Wisdom Excellence attained Anyuttara Samyaksambodhi, Sambodhi, five hundred, ten thousand million Buddha worlds in each of the ten directions trembled and shook in six different ways. The dark and secluded places within the lands where the light of the sun and moon is never able to penetrate were all brightly illuminated and the living beings were all able to see one another. And they all exclaimed, saying... How is it that living beings have suddenly come into existence in this place? Okay? So, as waking up starts to occur, a light shines and illuminates the darkest places. Which is maybe why most of us don't want to wake up. Because as we wake up, the light starts shining into the dark places. We did a koan in precepts course about uh, somebody who uh, is asked if they've been enlightened and they say yes and the teacher says, is it shining up your asshole? <laughs> and then the two parties fall over laughing <laughs> together on the floor in the kitchen. It's a great koan. That one. So um, this happens also a lot when we practice, Right? you get calm, and you get stable. You know, and when I'm on ret- I'm giving examples of retreats, because we were just on one, but when I'm on retreat, and somebody comes in, and I hear how stable they've got, and they're really feeling peacefulness, this little flag goes up. <laughs> because you know, the next day, it's all going to change. Because I think what happens is, is we practice breathing and attention, And over time, the nervous system settles, our emotions settle, our preoccupations settle, and we really get still. It happens. It's not magic. It just happens. And then, um, as soon as that happens, it's like the shaft of awareness drops down deeper and lights up another layer that maybe we're ready for now. And this seems to be the maturation or what seems like circumambulation in practice, which is we feel like we just got somewhere, but actually now we have the stability to look at something in more depth and with more honesty and more fiercely and courageously than before. But then what happens, I'm paraphrasing, is that then the light leaves the dark areas and starts lighting up the light areas until they become so bright that they're lighter than light. So imagine a light that can light something up and make it brighter than bright until what's so bright is equal to what's so dark that the two have the same quality of light. In other words... There's no idea anymore that this is a heavenly realm that is light. It's lit up so bright that you don't call it light anymore. In other words, whatever is showing up is what's showing up. And you don't determine it being dark or light. Does this make sense? Just like the rain that falls on everything equally. The rain doesn't say, no alley, I like the park. And your attention may even say, in your own body, oh, I don't like that neighborhood, but I like this neighborhood. Over time, everything is up for investigation and inquiry. And I would add kindness. Everything gets covered in milk. And gold sequins. (laughs) Uh, So then uh, everyone is surprised everything is so bright and they go to the Buddha and they say uh, Thank you. They pile up flowers around him. The flowers get so high. They're taller than Mount Meru Which is the tallest mountain on earth some of you might know this mythologically Mount Meru is famous because It's so tall, but it's upside down because it represents your pelvic floor So it's totally upside down. So it's balancing on its tip and it's wider at the top. And it just balances there. And it's a a metaphor in Hatha Yoga of one's uh, pelvis and internal uh, breathing patterns. Um, We hope you will bestow comfort and benefit on us. We beg you to accept and occupy these palaces we present. And this is a very interesting twist so now all these characters that have been lit up so this is happening inside you can you feel this a little so inside you right now all the cast of characters you know how, I don't know, was it nine years ago they took multiple personality disorder out of the dictionary of psychiatry because everybody has it laughter so imagine all of the, all them so maybe you had, I don't know, 10, 140, 73 million, 400 billion characters in you. And they all say now to awareness, please occupy these spaces. Right? So it's not just awareness is going towards them, they're also saying, you know, please stay with us now occupy this space some of us we get a hint like oh that's that area I haven't gone near you go near it for five minutes right? and now they're saying okay if you've gone there for five minutes then now occupy that space don't run away now you know there's an insurance statistic down in the United States uh, two years ago um, that determined that if you have more than one session of psychotherapy, it's determined long-term long-term treatment. That's how the bell is skewed. That's how many people quit after one session. If you have more than one session, it's considered long-term treatment. <laughs> <laughs> how many people are like this, right? We go, we go in, we start speaking about what's going on for us, And as soon as the therapist starts mirroring back to us what we've just said, we're out of there. Because it's in the open. And then we can't occupy that space. I remember having this thought about first sessions. First sessions in psychotherapy are so fascinating. Because basically, the person who comes in tells you everything that's wrong and every way that they can heal it. And then they have to stay for three or four years to actually embody that. But it's all there in the first session. And then in the second session, they don't say a word about what they said in the first session. They just start covering it all over again and making it more complex. We haven't even got to the good part yet. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> so the Buddha keeps sitting there for eighty-four thousand more kalpas. Okay? Eighty-four thousand kalpas. He's sitting there for eighty four thousand kalpas. Do you get the impact of this? Eighty four thousand I want to keep reading, but I I want to just like stay in this point. Eighty four thousand kalpas. In other words, time in the Lotus Sutra is relative because it's humanly constructed. Time's not constructed on its side, time's constructed on our side. And likewise, space. You have kalpas and you have yojanas. And the physicists have told us this over and over again that time and space are relative. And everywhere there is light, which too is relative and quite fascinating because really you see objects I can see this book but you can't see light you can only see what light lands on it's like if I want to look at light I have to have dust particles in the air in order to really see light so you can't even see light in fact when you look at light what you're seeing is the light that was You're seeing light that's already passed. You're seeing something that was there, not that is there. It's residue, just like we explored in the last class. And according to even the Vedas, the whole world is just made out of residue. We're just there after the fact. And you can really see this when you look at time, and when you look at light, and when you look at space. Try in this room now to look at the light and you'll notice that the only thing you see is what's already passed, or you see an object. So when you start studying light and space you're immediately studying time. And if you really look at time you find space. So the temporal and spatial dimensions are interdependent and you can only experience them in the present. And you can only experience any dimension of time in present experience. So you actually, you can't experience your past. You can only experience your past now. And you can't experience your future. You can only experience your future now. So when you think about your past, you're actually creating a you in the present moment and a you in the past that you're relating to. But it's all happening now. So if I asked you to tell me something about the past, and then I would say, you know, when do you experience that? When do you experience the past? You can only respond now. Right? so th- this is kind of what the Buddha is getting at here Like, what was he doing for all these kalpas so then the Buddha continues about you know, how long this Buddha of great wisdom excellence was in these kalpas and then the punchline, then the Buddha says now thinking about the Buddha great wisdom excellence, meditating for all those kalpas makes me think that this is a lot like now I love this part. (laughs) Do you get the punchline? Yeah? So he's like, going back and thinking about that great wisdom excellence, going through 64,000 kalpas, meditating on a lion's seat, one yojana in length through the center of his body, filled with flowers against the background of a bodhi tree. You know, thinking about all that, he's saying to his students, makes me think about now (laughs) that this is a lot like that and to think about that I can only think about that here, now so I thought that we could do a little exercise around this are you up for an exercise tonight? Yeah. Um, and, and we'll, we'll end with this uh, it'll, it'll take a few minutes um, <coughs> Here's what I'd like you to do. I, I want to do a little meditation on time. So what I'd like you to do is just sit comfortably. And if you have writing materials, just to just to put them down and let your eyes close. And um Forget everything we've talked about. Just wipe those kalpas away. And just make your mind one long yojana, clear and free. And I'm going to say a sentence made up of three words. And I want you to just meditate on the sentence as if it's a question. Time is passing. So find your breathing, we're going to try it again, and I want you to inquire, what do these words actually mean, without assuming you know what they mean? So this time I want you to focus on each word, try and feel out, what does this word mean, without how you assume it in your life. So here goes Time. Is passing. time is passing. Take a deep breath, let your eyes open. This is a phrase we use all the time, isn't it? Time's passing. Here's what I'd like you to do. I want you to get into groups of three. And I want you to just share with your group what happened for you with each word. Time... is... So don't link them together, just each word. Time is passing. Now, I also want you to know when you share that there's... I don't know an answer. There isn't an answer. Okay? You can't be wrong or right about this. Just to share with your group what <coughs> what it is that you understand about these words time is passing okay so let's take about five minutes